Well, as we start off here, our new sermon series, Ask Me Anything, we're going to go through this for the next five weeks. And what we basically did is I said, let's let the church give us sermon topics to preach on. As if, as pastors, we aren't busy enough already and we're not challenged enough. So you may ask, why would you put yourself through this? But really, the reason why I wanted to do this is because I wanted to take the time to answer the questions that you guys really have in your heart. Because when we go out there into the world, you're interacting with the world and society. And your job is to be the best representation of the gospel. So I wanted to let you guys ask these questions so that we could talk about it as a church. Because you, the church, live in this world. And so it, it's not just for the fact that I'm bored. I'm not bored. Don't worry about that. I have <laughs> plenty of things to do. I mean, I'm, I'm sure my preaching team is also like, John, why did you do this to us? But the reason is because I want to equip the church to be able to serve their community. I want us as a church to be clear on some of these topics, and I want to let you guys ask these deep questions that you may have. So we had a lot of questions come up, and I tried to compile some of the similar topics together. I put them into top nine questions, and then I let you guys vote for the top five. And so these are the top five questions. Not in any particular order, but this is the order in which we're going to be preaching them. So first is, how does the church interact with the more controversial topics of our culture today, LGBT? Q2S plus, COVID mandates, abortion, weed. That was a number one question. Okay. What is the role of women in the church? Can they lead and preach? Some of you may not even have the context to really ask why this question is a question. Number three is how should Christians approach dating? How do we reconcile with the purity culture? I feel like that was also a very specific question, especially to the young people that are in our church. How should we interact with political issues? Can we disagree? Should we protest? That's a big one, right? I'm glad Pastor Rich is preaching on that one. <laughs> you see, I always assign, I, because I get to lead the, this, the pulpit, I get to assign the questions too. <laughs> and fifth, how should we raise our children in contrast with our modern culture? And there's going to be a bonus one. Six, how can I get the most out of my Bible? And that's going to be preached by Pastor Rich as well. So we know that we won't answer your deepest questions in this. But we want to unpack more of it with you. And I know that in this time that I get to have and I get to share, we're not going to be able to answer most of your questions. So I want to invite you guys, if you want to sit down and talk more, if you want to go in depth, please contact us. Let's go for coffee, let's sit down, let's talk, because what I could cover here in our, in our, our time here will not be able to really do any justice to, to a lot of these questions. So as pastors, we may not necessarily give you an answer, but what I want to do is I want to set you up in a way where you have the right posture and the right position to figure it out for yourself. So that being said, today's big question, how does the church interact with the more controversial topics in our culture. And we're going to look at four specific topics. 
LGBTQ2S+, COVID mandates, abortion, and weed. But before we get into it, let's pray. Father God, we just ask for your grace. We ask for your mercy, we ask for your wisdom, we ask for your spirit to come into this place because some of these things that we're going to be talking about, Lord, we just ask for your wisdom and your guidance in, in these things. So, Father God, we know that you are a God that loves this world. We know that you are a God that cares about how the church interacts with this world. So, Lord, we ask for your grace as we go through this series, and we pray that your spirit is in us and in, in all of the things that we're going to be discussing today. So, Lord, we thank you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Name, amen. So, how does the church interact with their culture? The societal pressures and the values. The quick and easy answer is this we answer it biblically. We answer it biblically. What does that mean? Well, it means that we believe that God has an answer to all of life's questions, and He gives these answers to us through the Bible. The hard thing is that we may not fully agree or fully understand either the question or the answer, and that's where the tension begins. When we read the Bible, we could just read it as text and say, okay, I get it. We'll do our devotions, we open our Bible, we, 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 we pray, pray to Jesus, we read, read scripture, and we're like, okay, I get it. That's pretty straightforward. But today as we read, I want to frame everything in Matthew chapter 22, 36 to 40. It says, Teacher, which command in law is the greatest? And Jesus replied to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus said that this is the greatest commandment. What is it? To love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. So we understand that, yes, first, we need to love God. And second, we need to love our neighbors. But to take this further, we also understand what Jesus is teaching is that there is an order in which we need to do these things. That we need to first, what? Love God. And then, out of that love, we're to love our neighbor. You see, when we talk about loving God, when we love God, it's not just the aspect of, oh, we're, we love you, we serve you, we, we adore you, we give our praise and worship to you. But in the aspect of loving God, God reveals to us who we are. In the aspect of loving God, God pours out his love into our lives as well. And so in the aspect of loving God, it's not just an, the, the idea of worship and the idea of praise and the idea of us pouring our affections to God, but it's also the idea of God loving us and us receiving God's love to a place where we understand first and foremost, this is where our identity rests. 
We need to first understand this because if we don't understand this, we are not able to love our neighbors the way that God wants us to love our neighbors. That to love our neighbors requires something that is outside of ourselves, outside of what we know, outside of what's in our heart. That we cannot actually love our neighbors without the love of God. We can try, but you're going to fail. We can try, but you're going to be disappointed. Because when you try to love your neighbor, when they come with all their problems and all their issues and all their, 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 their thoughts and beliefs, what's going to happen is there's going to be tension. And in order to overcome that tension, is you're going to have to, you're only going to be able to overcome that tension, that, that tension by loving them the way that God loves them, loving them the way that God sees them, loving them the way that God, God calls you to love them. So, so know that this is not as simple as, oh, I like my neighbor. I care for them. I take out their garbage for them. Uh, I, 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 I run errands for them. I, I, I take care of them. I give them presents. I give them gifts. It's not that simple. Loving your neighbor means loving them through the messiness of life and through the tensions of life. So we could read the Bible and say, yeah, love God, love, love your neighbor. It's simple. But there's a complexity to that. Jesus, 1 John 4, 7, emphasizes this, that, we need to, that it is out of God's love that we love. Then Jesus says, he goes on to say that on these two commandments hang all the law and prophets, which means that the entire law, the Ten Commandments and the Torah, okay, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, and there's, there's given to us, Moses written, has all the instructions and everything of how, what we are supposed to do. So the Ten Commandments and the Torah, that's the law, and the prophetic books that were given, which gives us all the prophecies of, from God, all of these things depend on these two commandments, Okay? That Jesus emphasizes this in Matthew 7, 12. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Like I said, the concept is simple yet complex. It's simple to understand, but complex to apply. Because this sets the tone for everything that is written in the Bible, from the laws to the prophecies, that loving God and loving others is the basis in all that the church does. What we began to do is we began to apply the hermeneutics and, and exegize these words to determine what is being said. To do that, we look at the historical, the cultural background, the audience that's written to. These things help us to form a deeper understanding as to how we are to apply what is written to how we live. So today we're going to take these same hermeneutics and exegesis to apply them to these topics. You see, the tension that's usually felt when we look at these topics is the pressure of who do I love more? Do I love God more or do I love myself more? Do I love God more and I care about what, how God sees me or do I worry about the perceptions of what others have of me? So many of the things that we're talking about today is not so clean cut and not so black and white. It's not even right or wrong. 
There are aspects of right and wrong. But there are aspects that also affect our human identity. So some of you may agree with me. Others may disagree with me. But I'm going to do my best in helping us come up to some conclusion for yourself on these things. So, like I said, we've combined some of the more topical questions that you guys have had that fits into a societal and cultural context. The most asked question in this area, guess what? Is LGBTQ2S plus community and gender. This is a very tricky and sensitive topic because society tells us that we need to redefine what gender and sexual orientation is about. These things are so personal to us, it's about attraction, identity, and behavior. Things that we feel make up who we are. So why is this such a big issue? Well, it actually starts back in the 50s and 60s, where there was a broader sexual revolution and an activist movement that worked to create new categories of what civil rights defined by sexual orientation. This ideology has heavily influenced every area of our culture, including segments of the church. Think about entertainment. Oftentimes, entertainment is the barometer of where our society is. It tells us what the value system is in our, in our culture. Where now there are more and more characters and dialogues of being more inclusive and normalizing the LGBTQ community. Now, if you're opposed to support this community, you're then given a negative label as being anti-gay or anti-equality or just being bigoted. If we're not affirming, therefore we are anti. This is not what the Bible is about. What the Bible teaches us and what it holds on to is a vibrant biblical sexual ethics in creation. However, sexuality has become more secularized. Where the church fail is not being anti-LGBTQ. Where the church failed is that it hasn't presented the right vision of God's positive, life-affirming design for marriage and his creation. So where do we start? We start at their original intent in creation. In Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. Of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Genesis 2, 23, 24 says, The man said, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she has taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That God created humanity in his image, male and female, two distinct but complementary beings for each other. Together, man and woman reflect the image and likeness of God. Adam was not complete without Eve, and Eve was not complete without Adam. C.S. Lewis says this, The Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism. For that is what the words one flesh would be in modern English, and the Christians believe that when he said this, he was not expressing a sentiment but stating a fact just as one is stating a fact when one says that a lock and its key are one mechanism or that a violin and bow are one musical instrument. The inventor of the human machine was telling us that his two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on a sexual level, but totally combined. 
This represents the act of two becoming one at the deepest level of your being. But here's where it all goes wrong. As a church, we often play out judgment before we play out anything else. We often downplay the struggles that this community face, and this too has to change. One of the verses that's used against the community oftentimes is Romans 1, which in, in these verses, the church used to teach about the sin of sexuality outside of the created man and woman. It also talks about how we are subject to the consequence of the fallen world when Adam and Eve, the representations of humanity, turn away from God. So we are born into a fallen world of sin. And it's important that we recognize what Paul is talking about, and he's talking unto us in societal terms and not individual terms. The presence of these desires and feelings are not indications that the individual has turned from God or that they have sinned. Where people struggle with sexual identity is very much individualized. It's the same as why some of us struggle more and are prone to gossip, lust, greed, or pride, which are all also stated in Romans 1. The Bible is actually very honest about sexual sin in a fallen world, and it describes many kinds of sexual activity, including polygamy, incest, prostitution, rape, and homosexuality. All of them are rejected as part of God's design. And the only kind of sexual behavior that the Bible prescribes as marriage is between one man and one woman. So this is quickly touching on this subject. And if anybody wants to talk about this further, they can sit down and talk with me. I've done a lot of reading to really be sensitive to this issue. But to answer the question of how we interact with this is this. For those that are struggling with this and are struggling in this area, and you feel like, well, this is me, I want to say that your feelings or your attractions or your temptations or even the deep soul struggle is not prohibited by Scripture. In fact, God tells us that he is close to the hurting, the confused, and the tempted. Sin only occurs when the lustful thoughts are entertained and we engage in it. But if you've also engaged in it, I want to tell you that God's grace and his love is also there. I know that it feels impossible sometimes. And so much of life's struggle is tough. But I want you to know that you don't have to walk it out alone. You need to be grounded in God's love. And that involves developing healthy relationships with others in the church. So that you can grow closer to Christ. This isn't easy. I don't think that there is a single way to deal with every story, and every story is unique. But my encouragement to you is that you love God first, and then you love your neighbors. And then as a church, the appropriate response for us also comes from that place of loving God and loving your neighbor. The church needs to include compassionate love, authentic humility, and gentle truth. Loving others means sticking out um, with people in this community and sticking by their side and caring for them and extending the love of Christ, whether or not they ever turn from their sin. Our job is to encourage them to pursue Jesus. Yeah. 
As long as they're doing what, as long as they're pursuing Jesus, we are there, we are always there to help them navigate this, this area in their life. This requires a lot of patience, a lot of gentleness, and a lot of humility. It requires conversations with God, acknowledging and confessing and turning from first our own sins. But we must let love and compassion be our motive rather than fear, anger, or hatred. This is going to be the resounding message for this sermon. As we quickly touch the other subjects as well, I want us to be a church where people are able to come into the church to walk out their struggle. That they are able to be part of this community because they struggle in this area. And that as a church, we walk alongside them. The next was about COVID mandates. Hmm, Fun one. To be vaccinated or not, to wear a mask or not. Romans 13.1 and 2 says this, Paul writes this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who, who resist will incur judgment. I feel a lot of death stares. <laughs> Let's understand this in context first, okay? that this doesn't contradict other New Testament passages that allows for dis- civil disobedience in circun- certain circumstances. Its teaching is about submission, but we cannot treat it as law that has no exception. Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. So the standard of conduct is actually set by God, not by society. But Paul follows up this message of do not com- be conformed to do this with what? Humility. What Paul is saying is that God has ordained civil authorities as a general principle, not a specific human ruler or any form of government, because if this was the case, then God would be changing his plans constantly and would be working against himself. What Paul is saying is that everyone should submit to civil authorities which have been authorized by God. There are exceptions to this, and Jesus did it too. However, in this context, Paul is writing to the church, to the Roman church, specifically about paying taxes. But God says that, but what Paul says is that by submitting, Christians set a good example. Romans 12, 17, 18 says, to take, to take thought for what is noble in the sight of all and to live peaceably with all that Christians fulfill part of their moral duties, but Paul expands this even more in Romans 13, verse 8. It says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do we see a theme now? Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. I'm going to leave this here and let Rich expand it because we could get political in this. Again, church, the Bible teaches us to love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling of the law. 
in so many aspects, as I, as I was writing this sermon, I'm like, I cannot show partiality in this. But one of the encouragements I want to give you here is that we are to love our neighbors. So mass mandate or not, it's about loving your neighbors. Prior to the pandemic, I want to point to the Asian countries because they were very conscientious about this. In Japan, in Taiwan, in China, in Hong Kong, a lot of people, when they're sick, they just put on a mask. In Korea, they just put on a mask because they care for their neighbors. They don't put on a mask because they're scared of what they're going to contract. They put on a mask because they don't want to give what they have to others. That's what loving your neighbor is. It's not really about a mandate. Take the mandate away and say, well, how do I love my neighbor? This is pre-pandemic. Don't look at it as a new thing. So yeah, I'm going to leave that there for Rich to continue to attack. <laughs> I'm actually going to leave a lot for Rich to continue to attack here. So next thing is weed. Where's the controversy in this? As an ex-weed smoker, there's no controversy. <laughs> I'm only kidding. I actually believe this question was asked because we live in a place where smoking weed is now legal, so how do we reconcile that? Well, this is what I could say for sure. It's the same as drinking, because drinking is legal. So what does the Bible say about drinking? It says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Well, you're saying, well, this isn't about weed, this is about wine. Okay, sure. But let's talk about the principle around this. This is not specific to wine, but the idea of drunkenness. Well, you're like, well, weed doesn't make you drunk. Well, it doesn't, that's right, but we get intoxicated. And drunkenness and intoxication is the same thing. When we're intoxicated, our mind is affected by it. The idea behind being drunk on wine is not specific to just wine. It's specific to what alters your behavior and takes away your inhibitions. Inhibitions is the feeling that restrains you from doing something that can be foolish. It's a self-consciousness that we have that makes us hold back on possibly doing something that, we may, that may have negative repercussions. It's about imposing restraint. And so being drunken or being intoxicated will change your behaviors. Your filters are then taken down. So Paul says, don't get drunk on wine. And some of you sometimes take liberty in this and say, well, I don't drink wine, I drink tequila, or I drink whiskey, <laughs> or I drink beer. Let's not get technical about it, okay? What Paul is talking about is that this puts you in a place where your mind is not right, where your inhibitions may not be there, and your restraints may not be there, and that could lead to debauchery. So let's talk about weed. So what is weed? Well, I used to deal this stuff, so I know a lot about weed. The main compounds in weed is THD and C CBD. These are the two main compounds in weed. 
THD, THC is what gives you the high. It's what alters the mood and the behavior. Now, I mean, we see cannabis stores popping up everywhere in Vancouver, right? So we call that recreational weed. That's what we find at our local cannabis stores. But there's also something called medical can cannabis, medical weed, medical marijuana. That's a very different substance, okay? So for those that are sick and taking medical marijuana, I am going to give you a pass. Because mar medical marijuana has developed that the THD level is down, but the CBD level is high. CBD content is used for therapeutics and lowers, whereas THD is generally where recreational marijuana is, is what alters mood and behavior. So, in other words, if you're prescribed medical marijuana, I believe it's also for a specific period, for a specific reason, and is seen as part of a prescription made by a professional doctor, and so therefore I think it's fine. However, recreational marijuana, because it, just because it's legal now, does not fall under that category, but falls under the category of drinking. So, we always say drink responsibly and don't get drunk. So if you could smoke responsibility and not get high, then sure, do it. But let's talk about what it means to smoke responsibly and not get high. So we, we talk about what is the legal sense of getting drunk or getting high. Getting drunk defined by law, your, your blood alcohol level cannot go over 0 0.8. Anything higher than that, you are officially drunk. For driving, it's 0 0.5, so it's even lower, okay? So to get your blood alcohol level to 0 0.8 usually takes between four to six drinks. What is four to six drinks? I'm not talking about like Oktoberfest, like drink a boot, a beer with boot. No, that's not, that's not one drink, that's like four drinks, okay? So one boot, you're drunk, okay? Don't try to stretch it. Don't say, I'm gonna get the biggest cup and this is my drink. One drink is defined by law, okay? 12 ounces of 5% alcohol, which is about a bottle of beer or a pint. Five ounces of wine, okay? Don't try to pour yourself a tall glass of wine. I know some, some of you like to take it to the brim, right? To the brim. Or 1.5 ounce of 40%, so that's your whiskeys, your hard liquor. That's one drink, okay? Four is your max before you are legally drunk. Some of us, all the Asians in this room, <laughs> it's probably less than that. Because genetically, we don't tolerate alcohol as well. To achieve the same level of intoxication with marijuana only takes seven milligrams. So what is seven milligrams? That's four puffs of a joint. I have never seen anybody able to take just four puffs of a joint. That's not possible. Because when I used to smoke, it was about being, having fun, right? If you could take four puffs of marijuana and say, okay, that's it, I'm done, sure, I'll give you a pass, but I know 
I know in your heart that you're not going to do that. What Paul follows up with this, it says, instead of drunkenness, be filled with the Spirit, which brings joy, and he gives thanks to who God is. I don't want us to get legalistic about it. I don't want us to, to bear down to the, the milligrams and the, the ounces that we drink and consume. It really is about the heart. It really is about the heart of worship and how do we worship unto God. What is the example that we're setting and what are we, what, how, are, how are we living as witness to the rest of the world? It says, do not get drunk for it leads to what? Debauchery. Debauchery is doing something that lowers your sexual inhibitions and allows you to go and prance around. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Last thing here, abortion. This is a hard one because this is very politically charged right now. So this is what I'm going to say. God created each and every person in this room. The argument with abortion is where does life begin, at birth or at conception? In Scripture, there are so many verses that talk about how God created you in the womb. And it says this, For you are created in my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's room. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. The reality is that we believe human beings exist in the womb because it is written in the Bible. What science also tells us is that the DNA of the fetus is not the same DNA as the mother. That eight weeks, the fetus has its own organs, which includes its own heart, and that it actually starts pumping its own blood. So the fetus is its own body that exists in the woman's body. This topic could easily become political, so I'm going to talk about this topic like this and leave that to Rich. <laughs> Our job as Christians is to protect the vulnerable, and that includes those who are unborn. So this means that we continue to understand the situation around why someone would choose an abortion, to speak truth and love into the situation, and I believe that there are a lot of different reasons out there for abortions, and each case is individualized and unique. With that being said, the church needs to be part of the solution in how we are to address all of these reasons. It is a, if it is a reason of inconvenience, if it is a reason of shame, or if it is a reason of trauma, whatever the reason is, that there is an alternative solution to, abor to abortion. So again, these are hard topics, and because of time, I'm not able to get into it deeply. But I want to end here. That there is grace that is given through Jesus in all of these topics that we have covered here today. And that I want this to be a part of Five Stones Church. That this church becomes a safe place for people who are struggling with these things. And this church becomes a place where people are able to reconcile with how the world sees it versus how the Bible sees it. I want this church to extend grace and mercy 
to extend love, the love of Jesus and the kindness of Jesus because this brings repentance and repentance brings healing. This is what the church's job is. Yes, there is judgment, and that's why there is mercy and grace, but judgment is done by Jesus who took on your sin. Your job is to love God so that you could love your neighbor. Your job is to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Your job in being the church is to walk alongside each other and point each other towards the transforming power of Jesus. This is radical living in the church. This is what sets us apart. This is the culture that points us to what Jesus has done for us. We are sinners in need of a savior, and that's the beauty of the church. The beauty of the church is that we all have a savior. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your reminder of what your commandments for us as a church is. That first we come to a place of understanding your love and that we love you for all that you've done, that you sent Jesus to die for our sins, that you've reconciled us, that you have paid the price for death. And then you've called us to love our neighbors the same way that you've loved us as sinners. So Father God, we just pray that your grace be upon this church. That you give us grace to extend grace. And Lord, that we are able to minister to the people that are in our community, that we interact with the the societal and cultural pressures of our community in the way that we want us that that you want us to do it. So Father God, we may not have all of the intricate details and all the intricate answers, but we know that you do. So Lord, we ask for your spirit to give us gifts, gifts of wisdom, gifts of discernment. We ask for these things so that we are able to interact with our society in the way that not only uplifts who you are, but uplifts them as your people. So Father God, this is not about us, but it's about you. Lord, that this is about you loving the world that you gave your son. So Father God, as a church, we fall into your grace and your mercy and we extend your love and your kindness. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just linger for a little bit. Just receive the Father's love, the Father's presence. I'm so proud of Pastor John. This is a really hard topic to cover. We had a lot of vigorous debates on how to handle these subjects. But I just felt like he really captured God's heart. And I'll tell you why. Because this was a pastoral message and not a theological message. That's the key. That's the word of wisdom. We're in a culture right now that is so antagonistic and so divided. We're ready to cross swords. People are going to pull out their swords and they want to chop off the heads of Christians. 
And there are Christians that want to chop off the head of the Philistines and it becomes a sword duel. But that's not the spirit in which God wants us to engage. God wants us to put our sword back in the sheath, put our arms around people and walk with them. It doesn't mean we're permissive. It doesn't mean we're compromising. It doesn't mean we don't believe in the word of God and uphold its authority, its truth. And where do I get this idea? From John chapter 8, when the woman was caught in adultery and the Pharisees and Sadducees flung her at the feet of Jesus, they took out their theological swords and say, it's time to spear her and to skewer her and to condemn her. I mean, it is written in black and white in the Old Testament. And Jesus knew that. He knew it better than the Pharisees and Sadducees. But he turned a theological situation. Look at the law, Jesus. What are you going to do? He turned that into a pastoral situation. He completely understood where she was at. He certainly understood where the Pharisees were at. And he completely disarmed that situation by giving that woman a safe place. And then at the end, after he released her, he said, I don't condemn you. He said, go and sin no more. Did she sin? Yeah, she sinned. But he did not play the sin card first. He did not speak judgment first. So the pastoral practical takeaway is when we talk to people in our circle, engage in a conversation. Don't play the judgment card. Don't say this is how it should be. How dare you? Shame on you that you do this. Right now, I don't talk to people at length at all about some of these subjects, even as a pastor, because they just want to set me up to knock me down. They want to set up me up for a soundbite. Say, see, this is what the church is like. We just knew it all along. So I'm not willing to talk to anyone because right now it's hostile. There's hostility against Christians. We talk about segments of society that feel rejection. We feel that rejection. So we don't feel safe. And I won't tell people what the soundbite is or the conclusion. I want them to find out from the Bible. Have you studied the Word of God? Do you know what the Lord says about this? After you've studied that, let's have a conversation. I want to hear your journey. I want to know how you got to this place. We don't turn it into a theological duel. It's a pastoral situation. And then the truth will naturally bubble up in the midst of that. So Lord, help us as a church to interact and to relate humanely. To not treat people just as a doctrinal equation. But they're real human beings walking through real struggles. And you showed us how to do it, Lord. So fill us with that same spirit. You are the perfect blend of spirit and truth. Of truth and mercy. And we want to walk in that. Not let go of truth for the sake of mercy and not let go of mercy for the sake of truth, but to walk in both of them perfectly. So we thank you, God, for your grace. We thank you for your presence. God, with us in this service. And we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The grace of the Lord be with you.
We will see you next Sunday.